Hello and welcome back to Breaking the Carbon Bond, the how-to podcast that helps you free yourself and your home from fossil fuels. Last spring and summer, we spent six episodes taking one house through the transition to clean energy. Now that all the clean energy systems are operational and most of them have been through a winter, we're back to look at the results and answer the big questions like, can a fossil fuel-free house really be comfortable in a cold climate? Is it affordable? Can it meet the vaunted net zero standard without any fossil fuel inputs? We have actual data and actual answers. And what's your final answer? Does this clean energy stuff actually work? I'm going to answer that as quickly and honestly as I can because, and a lot of you out there may agree, I am sick of podcast cliffhangers and their overblown suspense. But first I'll remind you that I'm Rick Craig, your host here at Breaking the Carbon Bond, joined by my occasional co-host, Ren Sillenberg, our voice for the generation that will have to live with the consequences of our changing climate. She's in from her life on the road as a recent college graduate and aspiring big wall rock climber to help us sort through the results of our experiment. Hey, Ren. Hey. So, what's the word on retrofitting a house to run on 100% clean energy in Montana? Does it work? My answer is mostly. There are a lot of variables that can tip things towards success or failure, and I don't want to mislead anyone by giving a rosier picture than the data justifies. But for this house, in this year, it's looking good. It's been a mild winter so far, but we have had a couple of cold snaps, with high temps in the 20s and lows dipping into the single digits. The house has stayed comfortable while running entirely on electricity and is on pace to hit its target for annual energy use. In fact, we'll use less than predicted if the winter continues like this. The solar system is producing a bit more than predicted, so even with some car charging, we'll end up with a surplus if the winter stays mild. That sounds like a straight-up yes. Why is your answer only mostly? Mainly because the two big numbers we're trying to balance, the amount of electricity the solar array produces in a year and the amount the house uses, can vary a lot from year to year or from house to house. If the year is especially sunny and warm, things will look great. But a cold, cloudy year can leave you way short and owing the utility a significant chunk of money. Especially in a climate like ours, the variation from year to year can be extreme. So the results from just one house in one year aren't really anything you can base conclusions on. And there's another complicating factor, or actually a whole set of them, which is that even though I said earlier in the podcast that this house is an experiment, it's more of a real-world experiment than a tightly controlled laboratory experiment. What do you mean by that? Well, in a real experiment, you would gather years' worth of data from the house before the retrofit. Then you would make all the changes at once, and then gather years of data from afterwards. You do that for a couple hundred houses in different climates, and you'll have something you can actually base your decisions on. But a house you actually live in while the rest of your life is going on is a little bit messier. Hmm. Let's just dive into the numbers, and you can explain the messiness as we go. What's first? Let's start with energy production and energy use. We talked in an earlier episode about how to calculate the house's energy needs and size the solar system. Those calculations led us to choose a system size of 7.7 kilowatts. But, and here's the first real-world complication, the supply chain for solar panels was still snarled last year, and we couldn't get the panels we wanted. We had to redesign for smaller panels and ended up with a system that only had a 7.26 kilowatt capacity. So you're making less energy than you wanted to? Well, no. 
that real-world glitch actually got covered by a pleasant real-world surprise. When we were planning the system, we went to the calculator on the National Renewable Energy Lab's website, the calculator is called PV Watts, and plugged in our location and the system size to see how much energy it would produce in an average year. The estimate for the 7.7 kilowatt system was 9,400 kilowatt hours per year, and for the smaller 7.26 kilowatt system, it was 8,900 per year. But in our first full year of actual production, it put out almost exactly 10,000 kilowatt hours. So it's overperforming? Well, it did last year, but it's not clear if that's because the calculator didn't account for the high efficiency of the panels, or maybe it had imperfect weather data for our location, or maybe it was just an extra sunny year. But 10,000 is a nice round number, so I'm going to go with that as our annual production. Hmm. I see what you mean about this not being a tightly controlled experiment. Do you get to pick all your numbers just because you like them? I like to keep it simple. It makes the math easier. Right. Very scientific. So your energy budget is 10,000 kilowatt hours. What's that in money, by the way? We paid 13.6 per kilowatt hour last year, so the dollar value was $1,360. But the electricity rates just went up so it will be around 1500 in the future. How much did the solar system cost again? The price was 18500 but after the 30% tax credit, the actual cost was just under 13000 So that would pay for itself in less than 10 years? Actually, less than 9 now that the cost of electricity has gone up. Okay, so you've got 10,000 kilowatt hours to spend. Or for someone who doesn't put up solar panels but electrifies their whole house, about $1,500. Honestly, it doesn't seem like that much. I probably spend that much on energy in a year, and I live in a van. Yeah, but for you, that's your entire energy bill, and almost all of it goes to travel. For us, it's just the household energy expenses. Travel is a whole separate category. Right. So what are all the things you have to do with that energy? Heating, cooking, making hot water, laundry, lights, plug loads, and we're going to add some car charging. What are plug loads? All the stuff we plug in. Computers and appliances. And how much energy does that stuff use? Plug loads can be a lot when you go all electric. We've got things like an electric lawnmower, irrigation pump. If you count the washing machine and the dishwasher in this category, it can be up to a third of the annual total. Okay, let's add it up. Tell me how much you used for each of those things. Yep. I'm going to keep it to those simple round numbers, but I'm rounding up in every case, so it's not cheating. But when you rounded up the solar output, you were cheating. Technically, I didn't round up. I used the actual number from our first year of production. It's true I have reason to believe that number might be unusually high, but it's still a real number. Still, I'll admit the number could easily go down as low as 9,000 in other years. Okay, so the amount you're going to produce each year is probably between nine and 10,000. What are the numbers for how much you use? So we need 4,000 kilowatt hours a year for heating and another 2,000 for hot water. Plug loads are about 2,000 more and cooking probably about 300. So that's 8,300 kilowatt hours for the year. That's awesome, you're way under 10,000. You're even under 9,000. Well, yes, but there are some other considerations. First, those numbers are just for the house. There's also the garage, which is where car charging happens. 
Not to mention my woodworking shop, which has sometimes heat when I'm working in there. Okay, so how much does all that take? Weirdly enough, it probably takes up almost exactly what we have left in our 10,000 kilowatt hour budget. Car charging is the main thing. We have a Chevy Volt, which is a plug-in hybrid that goes about 50 miles on the battery and then switches to gas. All our local driving is done on the battery, and that could be as much as 4,000 miles a year. A fully electric vehicle would use even more electricity, but the home charging wouldn't go up that much because most of the additional charging would happen at charging stations along the road on long trips. So the numbers look like this. We need enough charging for about 4,000 miles of local driving. The Volt gets around 4 miles per kilowatt hour in warm weather and about 2.5 miles per kilowatt hour in cold weather, so we'll go with an average of 3 and a quarter. That's going to use 1,200 kilowatt hours in a year. The woodworking machines only get occasional use these days, and heating the space I can keep to a minimum. That's still done with gas, but let's say I replace that with a little heat pump or just use an electric space heater and time my use of it for warm days. We'll allot 6 to 800 kilowatt hours for those two things. So you come out just a couple hundred kilowatt hours short? That's only 30 bucks for the year. That's what the estimate says. We won't know for sure until next April, which is the date when our utility restarts the count on annual production credits. But our bill from late October shows that we're going into the winter with a credit of 3,600 kilowatt hours. And based on last winter, we can expect to generate another 2,600 during the heating season. If it's a mild winter, we should make it pretty easily on that amount. But if it's extra cold, we'll come up short. Okay, so you basically did it. An all-electric house that produces as much energy as it uses. Can other people expect that too? Okay, that's where the answers get really complicated. And we can wade into all the factors people need to consider when they look at their own house. But before we do that, let's summarize the situation here. We're looking at a 1,600 square foot house, three bedrooms and two baths, the annual energy used now that it's basically all electric is about 10,000 kilowatt hours, and that includes enough EV charging for 4,000 miles. The solar array is sized at 7.26 kilowatts. That's our summary picture of this house. So within those parameters, we seem to be making it to annualize net zero. But our situation is probably pretty close to a best case scenario. There are several ways that other houses will have a hard time doing as well. Like what? First, there's the solar production. Our roof faces directly south and its pitch is 34 degrees, which for this latitude and climate is pretty close to perfect for maximizing solar production. There's almost no shade that falls on the panels, so it will be hard to get any more out of a PV system. Especially with energy nerds like us living here and getting out the roof rake to clear the panels every time they get covered with snow. So most people will get less. Hmm, how much less? There are some variables that depend on where you live, but if you put the panels on a roof that faces east or west instead of south, you could see production drop by as much as 20%. If you have shadows from trees or a chimney or nearby buildings, that can take a surprisingly large toll on your output. And if snow covers your panels in the winter, that's another hit. Last year we made about 20% of our energy during the snow season. And we might have lost half of that if we had waited for the snow to melt off each time. Hmm. Sounds like if all those worked against you, you might only produce half as much power. 
Yeah, I think that's true. Okay, so you have a good site for solar production. What else is working in your favor? Well, sadly, we are empty nesters now, so there are only two of us living here. If you put four people in this house, the energy use would go up by a lot. How much? Well, the heating wouldn't really change, but things like hot water use and plug loads could double. Put in a fully electric car, or even two, and a big house that's not well insulated, and things can really ramp up. It's easy to picture a case in which you only get half as much output from a solar array this size, but need twice as much electricity to get through the year. Wait, are you saying the system would only produce half of what the house would need, or only a quarter? If you get the worst of both, low solar production in the range of 5,000 kilowatt hours per year, and high energy needs around 20,000, and those are both totally realistic numbers that people might encounter, then the solar system would only cover a quarter of the needs. Wow, so the same solar system that's covering your needs for the year would only make 25% of the energy for that house. That's a lot of variation. Yep. And if you really want to make things hard, you could move the house to an even colder climate. We actually need less heat here than they do in Minneapolis, or to a really hot one. And then you're pretty close to the worst case scenario. Okay, so I feel like you're kind of focusing on the negative here. You went through this whole process of evaluating your energy use, improving efficiency, going electric and adding solar, and it seems like you pretty much got it right. The house is using about the amount of energy you predicted, the solar is actually doing a little better than predicted, and you might not pay anything for energy this year. Wasn't that the goal? Yes, that's true. There's actually a lot to celebrate. If you do the energy audit and the calculations for your energy use, the same process we went through in the early episodes of this podcast, you should come pretty darn close. I just don't want to overstate it, because it might give people the false impression that this process is foolproof. I didn't really expect to come within a couple hundred kilowatt hours of the actual figures for our energy use, and I know there will be years when that doesn't happen. I think in a really cold winter we could come up short by as much as a couple thousand kilowatt hours. Okay, but is that so bad? That's only like $300 worth of electricity for the whole year. And everyone pays more for heat when it's a really cold winter, so it's not like something you're causing by going all electric. True. This has been a good test of the accuracy of the energy audit. It works. Okay, let's go over the costs. Back when we started all this, you said you wanted to do this whole project for, I think you were a little vague on the figure, but it seems like you said a little over $30,000. Did you do that? Yes, sort of. We were actually well under budget for doing all the things that were on the list in Plan A. So where does the sort of come in? Um, are you familiar with the term scope expansion? Not really, but I'm guessing it means the project got bigger while you were doing it. Correct. What did you add? Let's go over the expenses for Plan A first, and that will help explain how the scope expanded. Alright, your first task was improving energy efficiency so you could save money on things like the HVAC system and the solar array. Right, and that was a good investment. It cost about $2,500 to insulate the foundation on the back porch and to improve the air ceiling. So that reduced your energy needs? Yeah, we were able to downsize the solar array by about 2 kilowatts and still have it be big enough to match the projected energy use. And then it got downsized another half a kilowatt because the panels we wanted weren't available and we had to go with smaller ones. So partly by increasing efficiency, 
partly by market forces and partly because of the big tax credit, the cost of the solar system went down to $13,000. That was the installed cost, so there was at least one thing I didn't have to do myself. As I've mentioned before, we became part of a pilot project with a new heat pump manufacturer, and that allowed us to get the equipment at cost. That, plus all the associated plumbing parts, cost about $8,000. Financially, this was a real bargain. I've heard from a lot of people who've been pricing heat pump systems, and the installed cost is running two to three times that, even for simple systems. It also committed me to approximately a million hours of labor and troubleshooting, but that's another story. Beyond that, it was just the induction range, a bit of electrical upgrading, and materials for air sealing, all of which totaled about $2,500. So that's $26,000, way under budget. But apparently you weren't able to leave it there. No, it's a little like starting to clean up a big mess. You make a clean spot in one place, and the rest just looks dirtier by comparison. And the more I worked on our old salvaged windows, trying to plug the air leaks and keep them from falling apart, the more clear it was that they were a dirty spot that would never be clean until I replaced them. Wait, now I see why you were being cagey about how the scope expanded. Back in the spring when we talked about this, you said replacing windows wasn't a good bet, because producing them causes a lot of carbon emissions, and the energy savings don't justify that. You even implied that fancy energy-saving windows are a bougie affectation. Um, yes, I said that. And as a rule, I still think that. Unless you have single-pane windows or old aluminum sliders, you probably won't come out ahead in either cost savings or carbon emissions by replacing them. Ours weren't quite that old, but we'd sort of cobbled the sash onto a track that wasn't made for it. The seals were starting to give out, so a couple of the windows were fogged. Condensation was causing wood rot, and it was pretty clear that replacement couldn't wait that much longer. And once I started researching window replacements, it was kind of a slippery slope that led to buying. Yeah, never start shopping if you don't have to. What did you get? Well, I was trying to minimize the embodied carbon, so I got interested in suspended film windows, which have two panes of glass sandwiching one or more layers of mylar film. This way you get the performance of a triple-paned window with only two panes of glass. And since the glass is what takes so much energy to make, the suspended film windows reduce the embodied carbon by quite a bit. The first generation of these windows came out about 20 years ago, but there were so many problems they got pulled from the market. I had read that the problems have been solved and the new generation of suspended film windows was good. But the manufacturer didn't actually sound very confident. They talked me into what they call thin triple and quadruple pane windows, in which the outer panes are full thickness, but the inner ones, which don't need the strength, are only half as thick. So there's less total glass and less embodied carbon than a traditional triple paned window. And I'm guessing that blew your budget. Yeah, definitely. But not by as much as I thought. It was $21,000 to replace all the windows in the house. I didn't replace the doors, which aren't nearly as cold or leaky. I think you said before it would cost thirty dollars or $40,000 to replace the windows. Yeah, one nice thing that's happened is that there are starting to be more windows available that are high-end in terms of energy performance, but have a more affordable aesthetic. So these are fiberglass windows. They look and perform better than vinyl, but they don't look like the wood-clad windows that uh, you see in all the McMansions. So that's going to improve your energy efficiency even more, right? 
Yes, the windows went in over the summer, so they're not reflected in last winter's energy use. Since we're all about the numbers on this episode, I guess I should ask you to quantify that. Yes, yeah, so the windows improve energy efficiency in two ways. They have better insulation values, and they're less leaky than the old ones. On the blower door test, they made a huge improvement. I had chipped away at the leakage with air sealing and caulk and insulation, small measures that reduced the original number of 4.7 air changes per hour during the test to three and two-thirds. But after the windows went in, the number dropped to 1.3, which is an insane amount of improvement and shows that most of our leakage was from the old windows. Nice. That was one of the things that embarrassed you the most, that the house was leaky. True. Now it's at a respectable level for an energy-efficient house. So, what's the total energy savings for the windows? Well, when I look at the calculations, it shows the improved insulation value, reducing winter heat use by about 10%, and the improved air tightness could save another 10-12%. to How many BTUs would that be? At the design temperature, it would reduce the heating load by almost 4,000 BTUs per hour, almost 20% of the total. Okay, so way back in episode two, you gave us a formula for how much money any energy efficiency improvement would save to be worthwhile. How did that go? It says that to be cheaper than just adding more solar panels, an improvement shouldn't cost more than $600 for every 1,000 BTUs it saves. Okay, so you saved 4,000 BTUs at a cost of, what did you say, $21,000? Uh, correct. Um, so what's up with that? We're supposed to be listening to your advice about this stuff, but you don't even seem to follow your own guidelines. Uh, yeah, so it's true that I can't really justify the window purchase on the grounds of energy efficiency. But keep in mind that our old windows were salvaged in the first place, starting to lose their seals and generally nearing the end of their lifespan. If you look at it as a routine maintenance with side benefits for energy efficiency, it makes more sense. So you didn't get seduced by those high-tech triple-paned windows all the other green builders have in their houses. Actually, a mix of triple-pane and quadruple-pane, if I'm being completely honest. And yes, I did. Maybe a little. But at the risk of being a hypocrite, I stand by the original guidelines. If you have decent double-pane windows now, it probably won't be worth it in terms of either cost savings or energy efficiency to replace them. And if you factor in embodied carbon, it can even be detrimental. Okay, that was a bit of a digression on the costs. Let's go back to the energy usage and see how it compares to houses that don't electrify. It seems like we ended up with the nice round number of 10,000 kilowatt hours per year to power your all-electric house in a climate that's cold, but not as cold as Minnesota. Yes, plus enough EV charging for about 4,000 miles. But people need to keep in mind that it's a fairly small house, with only two people living in it. The energy use is going to scale with the size of the house, the number of the people living there, and the energy performance of the envelope. So 10,000 kilowatt hours is probably around the low end of the scale. And in dollar terms, that would cost people $1,500 annually in utility bills, right? Yes, at our new rate of 14.9 cents per kilowatt hour. How does that cost compare with a house that's still using fossil fuels? Uh, there are two relevant comparisons there. The first is the old standard of a house with a fossil fuel-powered furnace, dryer, and hot water heater. Around here, that's probably going to use methane gas, which is relatively cheap. In fact, gas prices actually went down as our electricity prices went up. 
So a comparable house with gas heat would probably average around $100 a month for total gas and electricity. So that's around $300 per year less than running on electricity. Okay, so people who make this conversion will be paying a bit more. In a cold climate, yes, they'll pay a bit more in utility bills. If you factor in the improved air quality and safety, no more carbon monoxide danger, and the possibility of using a heat pump for summer cooling, then you're getting a lot for that extra $300. And don't forget the possibility of adding solar generation to offset those costs. You can generate your own electricity, but you can't make your own methane. And in warmer climates or places where fuel is expensive, all electric houses can actually outcompete fossil fuels on the operating costs. What's the second comparison? That would be the hybrid system we talked about in our episode on HVAC systems. A house that keeps its fossil fuel-powered furnace but also adds a heat pump or other source of electric heat. The hybrid house is going to reduce its fossil fuel use, but it won't eliminate it. If the hybrid system is set up right, it will compete well with the methane-heated house on cost, maybe even be a few bucks cheaper. But of course, those people will have the expense of installing the heat pump in the first place. It's often the kind of thing you do when the furnace is approaching the end of its lifespan and you're ready to begin transitioning to clean energy. The hybrid house is kind of like a bridge to the future, right? You get your electric systems in place, heat pump and electric range, dryer, etc., but use the old furnace for the really cold weather until it wears out. Yes, that's a smart way to stage this. Then you can be ready to go all electric with your heat system when the furnace goes. And depending on your finances, maybe you can add a solar system at some point during the process. And most people will get some help with the cost from the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Just about everyone should be able to get some help with the cost. But how much is going to depend on your income and which state you live in. More affluent people will get tax credits, while lower income people should get direct rebates when they buy the equipment. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about doing a whole episode to guide people through the cost savings available from the Inflation Reduction Act. But because those savings are so individualized, that would make a dull, winding podcast, most of which would be irrelevant to most people. You can get answers much quicker if you go to the IRA Savings Calculator at rewiringamerica.org and plug in your information. So you missed out on all those savings, right? Because you did all this before the law was in place? We didn't completely miss it. The credit for solar got restored to 30% right away. It was being phased out and was down to 26%. And we should get a small tax credit for the windows, but I think that's limited to $300. All the credits for heat pumps, electric ranges, and heat pump water heaters came too late for us. But people who do this now will get a lot more help. Okay, so there's money to make this stuff happen. And your experiment worked. Clean energy, a healthier house that's at least as comfortable as it was before. All the stuff you promised in the first episode. That's the big takeaway here, right? That means there's nothing stopping the clean energy transition. Okay, so again, I'm a little hesitant to declare victory based on just this one case study. But as far as our house goes, yes, things went about as well as you could hope. The energy audit, sizing the solar system, annual energy use... All those numbers turned out to be pretty accurate. And the equipment, heat pump, water heating, PV array, induction range, is all working as designed. The house is comfortable and the energy use is on track. So why the hesitation? I guess because designing an all-electric HVAC system for a cold climate still feels like walking a tightrope to me. 
lean a little too far to either side and you're going to be in trouble. I guess I'm wishing for some extra margin of safety that will guarantee that no one who ever goes through this process will be unhappy with the result. But if everything is thought through and there's good equipment that's installed well, it works. Okay, it looks like I'm going to have to be the cheerleader here, so I'll ask again. That means there's nothing stopping the clean energy transition, right? You're right. It's pretty much as we said at the start of this process. All the technology for fossil fuel-free homes is available right now, and it will make our houses safer and healthier. At the same time, it gives us a more livable climate. So now we just get it done, right? Yep. The climate crisis is fixable. Let's get after it. Breaking the Carbon Bond is written and produced by volunteers with in-kind support from Climate Smart Missoula, the little nonprofit that punches above its weight. Useful links and further information about the clean energy transition can be found at missoulaclimate.org. We are always ad-free, but if your other podcasts have so conditioned you to having your attention monetized that you just can't live without it, you can relieve that urge via the donate button on that website which again is missoulaclimate.org. The views expressed here are those of the participants alone and should be taken as opinions, not as advice or instructions. And be aware that home remodeling can be dangerous and podcasts, how-to videos, and the like are no substitute for professional guidance, good safety practices, and sound judgment. <laughs>